0: hi everyone welcome back to the channel and or podcast wherever you may be listening or watching from this is vocal arts i just got off the horn with eric whittaker the phenomenal grammy award-winning choral composer who actually identifies very differently as a musician than i ever would have thought possible believe it or not we got into talking about electronics and dubstep and film scores and everything and it was no joke one of the most exciting, alive, fun conversations I've had in a long time, and not just for the channel. Eric and I really connected and it was such a joy to speak with him. And I did I just didn't realize how much we really had in common, both both with our musical experience and with our philosophies on music and life itself. I mean truly, and he says this at the end of the conversation. I think it's the start of a of a long, beautiful friendship between us. So guys, I mean such a joy. I mean this Eric Whitaker was, you know, a god to us in undergrad, singing all his music in chamber choir, and um, what a wonderful guy! And just, just an amazing conversation. Such an honor to speak with him. And I really, I mean, guys, settle in. You're really going to love this one. So please put your hands together for Eric Whitaker. Everybody, wherever you are watching or listening from today, I am here with the fabulous Eric Whitaker. And I'm going to yes, yes, yes. And I'm going to uh, pass the baton over to him and uh, let him introduce himself really quick and say uh, what he's up to and what he does for a living. Thanks,
1: Peter. Um, so I'm a composer and a conductor. I I suppose I'm a classical composer and conductor. I write for choirs mostly, orchestras, concert bands, and uh, I travel around conducting mostly my works. Uh, guest conducting choirs, orchestras, bands all over the world. Um, yeah, I live here in Los Angeles. It's not at all the way I thought this would play out. When I was a, a teenager, I was, uh, I thought I was going to be a pop musician. You know, I thought I was going to be fifth member of Depeche Mode. That's where I even write in my, my little tags on my social media, you know, it was fifth member of Depeche Mode pending. I'm just waiting for the, the answer for them. Um, but I, I discovered choral music in college. I, I got asked to sing, uh, and the very first piece I sang was the Requiem by Mozart. Oh, and it just utterly changed my life. And then I started writing for choir and and so now I guess I'm a, a classical composer.
0: Amazing. We'll we'll get into all of that. Yeah. Though I mean, one of my first questions was what your household was like growing up. Did you grow up being exposed to choral music? And what kinds of music did you listen to? And who were kind of your musical heroes as you were, you know, in childhood and then going into, you know, middle school and high school?
1: So no one in my family was a musician at all. I was really the black sheep. I don't know if that's how it was for you too. Were you? Did you grow up with a family musician?
0: My mom's side is, is musical. My dad's side is not whatsoever. <laughs> ah, that's interesting. Yeah, so
1: it, no one in my family was. But we had a, a piano that was an heirloom from a, my great-grandmother, who was a musician, and that part of her family was. So my earliest memories was just walking by that piano and then plunking out tunes and you know, just from listening by ear, and I think looking back, so I had no exposure to choral music to singing. I heard choir in high school, but um, you know they they, they, were, they were magical groups. They dressed like Henry VIII, and and there's just no way I was going to be a part of any of that. <laughs> um, and so when I when I really think about the the two things that awakened me, one was film music. I remember I saw Star Wars in the theaters in 1977. I was seven years old. And that and that John Williams orchestral approach is sort of the sound of my childhood. Uh, That plus then when I was 12, 13 years old, I discovered computer music. First, I discovered computers. I had a Commodore 64. Well, I didn't have it. My school had it. And so we would go and we had this little computer club and we would program on it. And then that led me to computer music, which led me to... Jean Michel Jarre and Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream, all these early synth groups, which led me to Depeche Mode, led me to Pet Shop Boys, led me to Duran Duran, all the '80s pop stuff. Um, so I'd say that those were my two biggest influences growing up.
0: So electronic music was a big part of your development.
1: So big. I mean, I can't. It, I wish you could see what I'm surrounded by here because maybe we can talk about it later. I'm getting ready to kind of go back to my roots and write a piece for choir and strings. And lots of electronics, and so I've I've like brought this all back now. And I still, even after doing this for thirty five years, classical music, I still think of myself as an electronic artist first. And, and I spend every waking hour from the ages of fourteen to eighteen in in my bedroom, uh, playing synths and drum machines and and making pop songs and film scores without films, basically.
0: Wow, we have much more in common than I realized. I knew we had some things in common, but electronic music is a huge part of my inspiration really? as an Oh yeah, I so I went to University of Miami for vocal performance. Still still singing opera. Um but when I was in Miami, I f- I found electronic music and went to festivals and stuff like that and started producing all my own stuff and I still, I mean, when I have extra free time, I am producing I like the, he- I like heavy stuff. I like, I'll produce like dubstep and crazy, crazy kinds of music. I but love dubstep. I love like, I,
1: yeah, I love the crunchier, more dissonant of the bad. Yes. I mean, we just spend like- this whole time talking about electronica, man. I, I had no idea. Forgive me for not knowing this part of your career. Um, for, forgive me as well. No, this is so fascinating. No, it's, it's to, to me. Uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to say everything that you think and feel like is a philosophy, but there's, there's something so magical about these machines that, that I think until you've actually played them, you, you, you don't realize that you're not making them make the sound as much as you're dancing with them, right? That they like, they've got their own internal. So I just had the other day, somebody said it so beautifully. They said that uh, electronic music is more like a river and they're going downstream one way or the other. And your job is to kind of, guide the river but you're not making the water go downstream the voltage is already in the system and so i i just love the tactile feeling of them and and the, the philosophy
0: behind electronic music that is so fascinating so you work a lot with analog instruments
1: well that's this is what's so funny so this piece that i'm i that i'm in in the midst of writing right now the, the only like like i always love an elevator pitch before i start to write a pitch like something like an idea here's a one sentence description of what this thing will be, even if it's not what it turns out to be, but just for myself, like, okay, here's the world that I want to try to build. And so what I said is I want to build Thomas Tallis meets Blade Runner. So that, that's that's where it started, right? Like, so it's just this delicate gossamer, ancient choral music, plus Vangelis, you know, and th- those 1981 synths. And so the first thing I did was I went back and started looking at, okay, can I literally get my hands on all these, these old synths? And you know, like that Casio CS80 that he uses, that classic Blade Runner sound, they're like $75,000 now, they're an actual original one, they're, oh they're fresh gosh. properties. So that's obviously not going to happen. So so, But in my exploration that I realized now there's this whole world of modular synthesis and these weird, weird machines that are mostly analog. And I don't know why that is. I'm still using some digital things, but I just keep falling back into that into real analog instruments where it's, you're just controlling voltage and, and using filters and oscillators. Um, and especially tactile music instruments. Do you know what I mean? You yeah. can get your hands on and push. I just can't stand screens anymore. I want to, I want to feel it in my hands.
0: Yeah. I, I've, I've always wanted to get more into analog. I had a, I had a few analog synths back in undergrad when I was really producing a lot of stuff. But for the most part, mine has been screen screen interface, which, yeah, it's it's much better to be able to to touch and move things and like experience the music that way. It's it's very different adjusting a knob. And like uh, I use Native Instruments Massive a lot, just one yeah, of those yeah. great, great synth designers, especially for dubstep music. And um, yeah, it's very, it's still very cool to go in and interact and adjust this and adjust that, but it's so different to feel it like tactile, like you said. Oh,
1: well, what I love about Native Instruments is they've actually kind of tried to bridge that gap, right? So they, they've got some, they're, they're super MIDI controllable or they've even got their own players so that you can, you're, you're in Massive, but you're still dialing the stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I also love Massive. I, that, that, that is, that instrument is just, it's crazy powerful. And yeah. then the challenge is, like like you're saying, that that when you're on the screen and you're you're in the box, then you can take it with you anywhere, and even better, it's replicable, right? So like especially if you're doing live gigs, you know that you can just take your laptop and maybe a couple controllers or whatever your 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 rig is, and then you're gonna open it and it's always gonna be the same. And I'm I'm laughing at myself now because I'm I'm using this one instrument called the Lyra Eight, which is. Um, uh maybe you can go look it up later and just see I wish I could show you a picture but it really looks like <laughs> it looks like an instrument that's taken from a Soyuz spacecraft from 1956. <laughs> and the only way the way you play it is each each voice, there's eight voices has these two metal discs and you have to actually put your finger on both of them and complete the circuit. your the voltage is traveling through your body to make it. okay now all of this is so beautiful wow. cool, but this thing is so fussy. Like if, 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 if I come back out here in the morning and the temperature has dropped five degrees in the room, then suddenly this thing is wildly out of tune. And so you have to like gently edge it back into tune and you have to keep. And so I keep thinking, how am I supposed to perform live with this
0: beat? <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> So, so I, I totally get, yeah, I get the, the, the necessity for having things in the box because otherwise you just can't replicate
0: it. That is this is such an interesting tangent I never in a million years <laughs> thought we would be going on. I'm absolutely here for it. I have to share, I mean, um, something I'm working on now that I started about a year and a half ago is these kind of dubstep bass singer, heavy multi-track, heavy multi-track vocal like reimaginings of songs. So for example, um, I don't know if you've seen the show Arcane, but it has some yeah. of the most some of the most amazing music written for score yeah, who then, is the then. composer do you know who who does his, it? his name is alex siever and i'm actually talking to him in a couple of weeks which are is you really the- wow yeah yes. tell him
1: it, yeah well obviously you'll tell him but uh, yeah it's uh i'm a massive fan
0: i will tell him that eric whittaker himself is a fan as well <laughs> and so what i've been doing is is taking these songs retracking all the vocals with you know heavily multi-tracked vocals especially with like a bass voice lead because that's what i do and you, you don't hear very much of them in in any any genre outside classical and occasionally okay. occasionally country and and putting like a heavy dubstep spin on all these songs. And it it is like absolutely where my passion is. Like when I have free time, I am just in ah. those projects recording and editing. Um and it's a blast. And it's it's it has like re-sparked like you're talking about, you know, 30 years ago getting back into that. For me it's the same way. Like it reinvigorates that love and joy for electronic music that you know, I had, I started, I guess, probably 12, 15 years ago for me at this point. It's amazing I, I, stuff. I can't wait to go and listen to all this. Are
1: you also writing original songs? Your, your
0: original? I, I have written a lot of original, purely electronic. This this new venture for now is just is just covers.
1: Ah yeah. And it's I imagine it's exploding on TikTok and Instagram.
0: And well, the and- thing is I haven't shared hardly any of it yet. I've only shared one song, which if you go to my if you go to my YouTube channel homepage, it is the featured song there. And I and I did a bunch of crowdfunding and shot a very epic professional music video for it and everything. But I have like six or seven more cooking right now. Oh, that is amazing.
1: Okay, yeah. So like first, yeah, like I said, I can't wait to hear this. And second, the thing that you said about like feeling that joy—that's—that's that's what I have now felt going back to the electronics. And I don't—I don't know if classical music can be—it's so beautiful, it's so elegant, it's so elevated, and it's also so stuffy and exacting. <laughs> I—it makes me crazy sometimes. And part of my process as a composer now is. I rarely even sit at the piano. Like I generally now have a pretty good idea of what things will sound like on the page. So I I use pencil and paper and, you know, I just sit quietly in a room and then I write it out and I think about it and I draw it out and then it gets engraved professionally. So it gets turned into, you know, what looks like sheet music. Somebody else does that for me. And then that gets sent over to the group and they rehearse it. And then I show up sometimes months later and I hear it for the first time. And what's gone is the reason I got into music in the first place, which was this idea that you could push into these electronics and immediately have this, this sound. that's like actually moving your shirt. You know what I mean? Like, like it's in your body. You're actually being, I, I think I'm being healed by it, by the sounds that are coming back, or I'm working through things emotionally in real time. And I miss that so much. And so, so I feel exactly the way you do, which is like, I I feel alive again. I feel it reminds me of, yeah. of how I used to feel when when I was making music.
0: Yeah, just piggybacking off that and sheet music. I mean, so I used to I used to be in an acapella group in undergrad and, and did chamber choir and loved it. Like I love all those things. And I'm currently in a a group of four bass singers called the Bass Gang, and we started out <laughs> as purely acapella, and now we've moved into usually just including um, like drums. We, but it's hev- you know it's heavily multi-tracked we collaborate from all over the world it's a it's wow. a cool it's a cool ensemble but i used to i used to you know write very formal arrangements all of us did where you sit down you write it out and then you put it and then you track from there and now we just go into the booth and record and you can record what you're feeling and you can you can sing a phrase and then immediately be like i don't like that i'm going to change the way i inflect this and that instead of writing it all on paper and then just kind of trusting what you wrote without getting that real time feedback and it's and it's been a game changer for the arrangements they're so much more interesting and they breathe so much more now because they've been made in real time with this input going back and forth between you and the and the and the recording software and you can send and you can send these parts out to the other guys to record that's how we do it. We all make a demo, all the parts we record ourselves, whoever's arranging, and then we send it out to the other guys to record their parts and they send it back. So they get to hear exactly how you wanted something done. Yeah. Not a, not a,
1: here's a blueprint, but here's, here's the track you're, you literally will be performing with.
0: Yes. And then of course, you know, then it becomes a collaboration between you and the other artists. Like maybe they want to do something different with this phrase, but they get a really, the ideas are alive, you know, (sighs) love this i love this so much
1: i mean i i it's, it's funny because writing for sheet music and you know this now from having done this with the arrangements it's it's kind of an abstraction and i have very specific faces in my mind when i'm writing that you know like I'm i'm writing for this group of altos i can see them in my mind so it's not just alto in a general way but at the same time I find that I tend up or tend to compose music on paper that is uh, durable, (laughs) that can withstand lots of different interpretations. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So it unfolds and blossoms in a way with a choir of 200, with a choir of 10, with with a choir that's professionals, with a choir that's amateur. Like there's a way of, of writing a blueprint so that it can withstand that. And, the idea that you go back and say, no, this is exactly what this is, like, like making a pop album, right? Or where it's just, you know, you don't go in and you're like, well, okay, I've got this arrangement. Now let's play each of the tracks. You come in and you say, what are we feeling? Does that work with that? No, throw that thing away. Try this. Oh, that's the, that's the juice. Throw everything else away. Take that, build that out. Yeah. It becomes more alive. And then I think what happens is when, when you listen to the recording of that, it's authentic. It hits you in the gut as opposed to what we do in cl- the classical world, which is you make the thing, it gets recorded in kind of a static way. Then you listen back to a performance of it designed for a concert hall, not designed for here yeah. in, in your, in your ears. And there's a, there's always a distance I find in yeah. the, the experience of listening to the recorded music.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Just, just a, a touch on your arrangements. Cause I mean, that is something I thought was always so brilliant about what you wrote. Is I mean, I, I you're I actually I took a summer and just wrote a bunch of choral music because I was I just I just really? had it. I just had it in me. It was back in like twenty seventeen and I just took a summer, I wrote ten choral pieces, and I gotta say, it was pretty much all inspired by your style of composition. The the harmonies and the the way you put dissonance in there. That, and and creating dissonance in a beautiful way and, you know, other times in a crunchy way that makes you uncomfortable. Like your use of dissonance is like absolute shining light of the choral world, in my opinion. Thank and, you, man. And something I took to heart and, and have taken from your compositions is, like you said, is being able to write for a group that's 10 people, professional or amateur, to a, to, you know, these 100,000 person virtual choir settings. If you're writing you know, super rangy, you know, extremely difficult to perform pieces from like a vocal standpoint, you put, you know, a B flat one at the end. It's like, there just aren't that many people that can sing that piece. Right. And And it separates and it makes it so that so that amazing music can't go as far as it can. Right. So there's this balance you have to strike between doing things that are interesting and complicated, but also making it in a way that a lot of people can appreciate it and perform it and enjoy it. And I think you've really, you've really straddled that line perfectly. Thank you, man.
1: That, that means so much to me. Um, Yeah. It's, it's a kind of, there's a pragmatism to it, right? That as you're writing, then then I I find it in a way liberating in terms of composition because I, 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 you know, I have a thousand ideas every day and and I'm always thinking, even if I don't have the idea tomorrow, I'm going to have a better idea and tomorrow I'll have a better, tomorrow I'll be a better composer tomorrow, you know, tomorrow I'll be one millimeter closer to Stravinsky or Bach. I'll, you know, I'll never even get <laughs> into <laughs> Of course though, of course, it's
0: progress, <laughs> progress every day. You keep thinking, you'll be, hmm. but the truth
1: is actually no. It's like the only way to get better is to make a decision and then, then, go and make a decision and go and make this. And one of the beautiful things about the handcuffs of pragmatism I find is that you have to really box yourself in. Right. So, so for instance, like you were saying, you can't do this crazy rangy stuff because most people can't do that. So then you have to really start to think, okay, I can only use this, this thing here, which actually from a compositional point of view is liberating, (laughs) right? Because then it, it, it now you've only got four colors on your palette. You can't just do whatever. And and so that that part I love. I love that it it forces me to be creative with the small amounts of material that I have. And I think that's partly where I landed on my approach to writing those dissonant chords that you talk about, which is that um I found for myself early on that I I didn't have the ear or the ability to just leap into the center of some crazy. Cluster chord, you know. If I had to sing the fourth, the sharp four of something in like this, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't <laughs> hear it. But if if I was singing a note with someone else, and then all I had to do was just hold onto my note for dear life, and somebody else moved a half step down, and then suddenly we're in the middle of this, that I could do. That even I could pull that off. I mean, I'm not I'm not a great singer, and so that developed. I sort of developed this technique then of finding really complex, shimmery harmonies. That that most people could could do, and I think that's part of the reason that that became my signature sound is because then lots of people try it, you know, as as opposed to pieces where it's just like, I I think a conductor might look at it and say, we can't do this. This is you know what I mean. There's no way we're gonna sing a ten part chord.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, totally. Everything you just said, hundred percent. It is. It's complex. The sounds are complex sounding but you have made them performable yeah which is
1: it, thank you thank you thank you I, I feel like i've sometimes i get closer than, than other times So sometimes <laughs> i think is going to be very performable like oh yeah this is this will be fine and then i get it up in front of a good choir or something to realize oh hell this is just this badly written just it's, <laughs> i always have this thing for myself i learned it with orchestras first but now i use it with with pro choirs too which is that um if I'm in front of a, a really good orchestra and I've written something new for them, we read through it th- the first time. And generally the first time, everybody's just like, what is happening, right? They All they have is their part. They're just holding on for dear life. Okay, I guess we do this. They're going to do that. The second time then, everybody has a general idea. Okay, this is what we're trying to make. Yep, we feel. It. By the third time, if it doesn't matter what the piece is. If the orchestra is still struggling by the third time through, it's your problem, not yeah. their problem. <laughs> like, like you've really written some, there's refining to be done, but I think even really complex, difficult pieces, a, an orchestra or a very good professional choir by the third time through, they, they, they're going to be able to give you a pretty good idea of what's on the page. Yeah. It's <laughs> a very exciting <laughs> moment for a composer when you're like, Oh no, that's oh,
0: that's no. That's no. That's I really thought that would work. And uh, that doesn't work. Yeah. I guess you have to have a sense of, of humility, I guess, in those cases.
1: Yeah. I'll tell you the, the one thing that I, I learned, it took me a long time to to learn this because I'd watched conductors, both orchestral and, and, and choral who, um, it's not that they were tyrants, but they approached from a place of leadership that was, I am the ultimate authority on the stage here. And I don't, I don't know if I was ever that arrogant, but I definitely never let my guard down to be, to say something like, Oh boy, this doesn't work. Or, I don't know what I'm doing in this place. And I, over the years, I've realized actually saying that out loud and, and, and getting the group to help you make this thing, especially the strings, you know, they, there's a million different ways of approaching the thing. And so I just always defer to them. How would you get this sound? Well, how about we do this? Yes. And then once they're allies, then it's, it's not you leading them anymore. It's everybody's sort of like, okay, let's build this mountain. Come on, let's make this thing together. And it's, it's that kind of, it's, it's a kind of humility in service of making something bigger than all of us on the stage.
0: Yeah. And then that's that, that's that live, that breathing life into a piece that we were talking about earlier. Once it, once it becomes a collaboration between you who's created it and the people that are actually performing it.
1: That's it. And that's the best feeling in the world, right? Where, where you're you're standing in front of them, but you realize actually, they've taken this into their hearts and their their souls. And it's like, Oh, they own this piece. They're make, they're making this happen. And then, then as a conductor, you're just surfing at that point. Just gently. I always laugh because I'll I'll see YouTube comments over videos where, you know, I'm conducting and people will say like, this guy has no idea what he's doing or he's impossible to follow. And I always want to say, I wish you could stand where I'm standing and realize they don't need this right now. They, that this group actually is doing all of that on their own. And so, in fact, there's a kind of gentle dance that I'm doing with them, just like the electronics, right? I was
0: just going to say that. I was just going to say that. (laughs) It's it's the same thing.
1: It's, it's, it's maybe that's my 35 year quest is like, you know is is to let go control and dance with the musicians in front of you whether they're electronic or human
0: yeah it is it is so different when whoever you're working with it's they're no longer just you know i'm paid this much to be here to play the notes it's like they want it to be something special like you said they've taken it into their hearts and souls and it completely changes the piece yeah for for the for the better i would say probably every time no question with the music. And then I think
1: actually if you get it right in terms of the music and the subject of the music, right, in in safety writing core music, the poetry, yeah. and you know opera, like the, the libretto and the story, if you get all of that right, it actually transforms the performers. They're different people when they finish that performance than when they started. Yeah. And if you've got that happening, then the audience is... You know, then then you'll truly take them from this side of the river to the other side of the river. You have this communal experience where everybody's being transformed, and no one's actually in charge. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like like we're all just we're all riding down the river together at the same
0: time. It's a team team sport.
1: Yeah, it really is. Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. I I love that connection between guiding the uh, analog voltage. You know, and it'll do it on its own. It's like for the the live performers, you have to get them to a certain point and then they become that stream. They don't it, just start there,
1: yes, yes, that's exactly it. and And then that that's an interesting thing because with with analog machines, it's very clear what the what the knobs and faders and buttons are, right? Like, okay, if I do this, I'm not entirely sure what will happen, but I have a general idea. At least I know where the buttons are, right? With human beings, it's a whole other thing, right? Like how how to speak, how to act, which metaphors to use when describing something. And what I found in concert music is that the foundation of that language to speak to any group of live musicians is the breath. Hmm the way you breathe as a conductor and the way everyone else breathes on stage, regardless of whether you're a violinist or you're a singer, that breath is filled with a with a very, very specific intention, right? More yes. than just, here's where we breathe at the same time. It's, it's actually filled with, here's, it's all of it. It's just these terabytes of emotional information, right? That you're sharing back and forth. And that's this magical thing. And this is what I'm constantly reminding myself when I, when I'm with live musicians is just, just be the breath, be the breath.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, Let's, I actually want to, let's go wind the clock back a little bit. Um, I'd love to hear about how you got started on that debut album, light and gold mm-hmm. and your inspirations there. And then that whole process, I mean, it ended up, you know, taking home a Grammy, which is just, such an amazing accomplishment and th- there's just there's just so much timeless excellent music on that album and i would love to hear about how that started thank you man well
1: i'll tell you what's really funny is it reminds me of um you know oftentimes i'll say with with pop Artists, they'll say like their first album is their greatest album, and then the second album, you know, the sophomore slump. See? And <laughs> musicians will always say well, that's because I have 15 years to make the first album and eight months to make the second album. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so by the time I recorded Light and Gold, it was I recorded it in 2010. Some of the pieces on that thing are were already 15, 16 years old, right? So wow. they, they tested, they did, <laughs> and and there's not a piece on Light and Gold that's one of I didn't include any of my wipeouts. Do you know what I mean? Like, like in those 15 <laughs> years, I wrote all sorts of pieces that were like, oh, <laughs> I will never see the light of day again. Those those are on the album, right? So so by the time I'd gotten to this collection of my my work, uh, they were kind of all of my, it's the, the best stuff that I'd made and the most polished stuff. And uh, I, it, everything happened very quickly, but I made my first virtual choir in 2010, and because of that, suddenly I got, rec- um, I got, uh, I got a call from Decca, and Decca said, "Would you be interested in making an album?" And and then I just taken on a, a new manager, a woman who I adore; <clears throat> she's she's my whole life, and she negotiated with Decca absolutely. But Eric will need his own professional choir in order to make this album. So that birthed the Eric Whitaker Singers. And then I just handpicked all these singers from my, I was living in London at the time, from my favorite British choirs. So from polyphony, from the 16, from the Talos scholars, from the Montemarite choir, just let's take that soprano, that tenor, this, you know, so make like this, this all-star choir of my favorite singers. And then uh, the album came out and um, yeah, it won the Grammy and which was totally unexpected. And I'll tell you, this is a fun story, which you especially will appreciate. So at the Grammys, you know, you go up and you receive your, your gong and then they immediately take you off stage and they take away your gong because it's a fake Grammy. You don't get your actual Grammy with your name on it until about three months later. <laughs> so what they do is they immediately take you off off the side of the stage and they put you in this little teeny holding pen and they wait for the next person. Uh, so that you go in pairs and then they take you through this whole press gauntlet, which takes about two hours. And each new press gauntlet, you're with this other person who the only reason you're with them is because they happen to be next to you in your category, right? So they announce best choral performance, whatever, that's me. Then the person right after me, who is it? It's Skrillex. So skrillex became my press buddy so the two of us just wandered around for two hours going from press to press to press and he would do his thing i would do my thing we're carrying these fake grammys I, the whole time i'm saying to him i'm a big fan man i really love you like, thanks man thank thank you he's the sweetest guy you know you'd never listen to his music and think soft gentle person <laughs> yeah. he is right um anyway so, so that was that was the Big thrill for me of winning that Grammy was that I just got to spend a couple hours with Skrillex walking around with these fake Grammys.
0: That is absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was do you it was... remember what? Do you remember what his Grammy was for? That was back, know, but to but back we, with
1: years. Look it up. I, I think I won in 2011. So whatever album he won, in, although he may have won a couple of Grammys. That scary
0: monsters, scary monsters, and nice Sprites, Maybe
1: I bet it was. So he may have won a couple. He may have won electronic producer or was they give you an album of the year i mean remember at one point yeah it was huge
0: it it was it was because no one had heard that kind of music before i I will never forget the moment i heard that song like a dubstep drop for the first time i was at the basement of a house party and my buddy ben was on the the dj decks and he threw on scary monsters and everyone at the party was just like what is happening right now? It is that like visceral kind of primal response that I it's feel like so only, powerful, right? only that music can, can bring on.
1: What's crazy is, you know, dubstep, I think even started way back in the late nineties or the early, the early aughts and it was all in London. Right. And it took yeah. 10 years for it to get out of the yeah. out of warehouses and, and for skillets to popularize it. Um, But I totally agree. There's something yeah, visceral and it's, yeah. it's, um, especially that that side chaining effect that they use where where you feel a punch and then you everything drops and punch, and it's it's like like you're actually being impacted in your body the same way the that...
0: I, I, I believe that dubstep producers are some of the most skilled producers on the planet. What they can do with sound and what they can do with the headspace in a mix is, totally is be, like how much sound they can pack in there and still have it be super clean. And it is. It's because of the side chaining. They are constantly. You. It's so smooth you don't even really notice it. But the whole time it's a wall of sound. Yet every element you can hear perfectly.
1: Exactly. I, I remember the first time that I. It was right around that time that I was hearing dubstep, and even more than say '90s house or or trance or you know whatever that early EDM stuff was, even in the '00s. I remember hearing dubstep and thinking. Oh, for the first time, people are playing the speakers like instruments. They're not using them as a way to, to have music that they made come through into your house. They've actually turned these things into the instruments themselves. And now you're in a room with the instrument. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah it's, it's I think people on the outside who don't know, like you said, the, the meticulous nature of making those tracks. I mean, and that's that's just the sound, right? That's just the making part of the other part is just the endless micro-editing. Oh, yeah. And now there's some tools that help with that, but you remember those early days with Skrillex or with BT where it's like you had to edit every, you know, BT would release these these songs with 4,000 edits in it. It's like three minutes long, and it's just... Every one of those glitches is like a hand-drawn edit.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember, I think my my first song I ever made was about 10, 10 or 11 years ago. And even since then it's come the software has come a long long way yeah and then and and now you can hear people who
1: just have the software right and are like yeah. glitch you know glitch you know and so yeah. so yeah then it'll be curious I'll be curious to see what happens how do people then break those machines right like how yeah. do people break those little glitch machines and then what's the next version of what's coming
0: yeah, we'll see we'll see um have you ever been to like a proper dubstep show with the giant speakers and the bass, just like flooding your whole system.
1: The closest I've come was a a concert at Coachella that I saw where it was, so it was outside and it was hot even at night, but it was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. Do you know what I mean? It is an experience. Yeah. It's actually like, like shaking your body where, where yeah, it's actually shaking your teeth. You know, it's that, that loud, and I had massive like earplugs like this, so that I could feel as much in my body as possible without blowing out my ears. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's the closest I've come. What I always wanted to do though was hear it inside, like a. Yeah, I had this dream of being in a a Berlin sort of like basement warehousey looking thing with with that sort of scream tech, you know, where it's just. <laughs> getting the flashy lights and weird projections and and like at some point you're just having an out-of-body experience because of the the sensory overload
0: yes would highly recommend it is it is 10 out of 10 well you actually play these things now as as a producer i i never played festivals that was part of my big dream once upon a time uh, before i kind of shifted back towards opera and all these other musical endeavors but i very much wanted to be like a festival dj producer for a long time but i've been to a number of festivals and countless shows inside with the you know hundred fifty thousand volt speakers and it is absolutely unreal i'll never forget there's this one i mean there's so many amazing memories but there's this one experience and i was hearing this artist called excision who's currently the biggest dubstep artist in the world and this is before he got really really famous this is probably back in 2015 and he came to a little 600 person venue in charlottesville virginia where i grew up and brought his whole sound system in that little 600 person theater. And there was this one moment when he started a subwoofer below, below hearing spectrum. And you could, you could feel oh. it before you could hear anything. You're just like, what is happening to my body? And then eventually it got up to like, we probably 30
1: feet long. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. like an actual yeah. earthquake.
0: It was unbelievable. You could feel your body started to move and the hair Standing up on like your legs before you could hear anything, and then it got up and like thirty hertz, and you could just start to hear it. Oh it was God. it was the it was like you know an invisible force, right? Yeah, it was just right. moving your body. It was absolutely. I'll never forget that moment. Uh, that, that was incredible.
1: It, it's inspiring. It's really inspiring. I would think, man, I mean, you must have had this thought, but you know, these days there's so many DJs, there's so many producers, and everybody's looking for a way to kind of stand out in a way to to take it to the the next level to personalize the experience i mean what better way to do that than you up there spinning and producing and singing at the same time with a real voice i mean that could be monstrous it could be really interesting to take people on that journey well, and- thank
0: you so much i mean i mean i i i believe you know Patting myself on the back that some of the music I'm making now is very interesting stuff because I do on some of the tracks I do put a little of the operatic singing in there so it's bass vocals but of course you know stacked harmonies the dubstep, occasionally I'll throw an operatic line in there or or like a, you know, to make even just maybe to add some atmosphere like you hear this like bassy vibrato happening you know, in the distance and you're like, it's just adds kind of like a spooky element to it almost. Man, I just, I would
1: imagine like, and some live looping and, you know, so you could, you could loop yourself. And like you said, you could, I'll bet you can sing in all different styles. So you can like activate the, the operatic style and then yeah. singing other things and just, just have that be like this part of your toolkit would be completely unique. I don't think I've, I can't think of a single time I've seen that
0: set of skills all in one place. Well, I really appreciate that and and the encouragement that'll, it'll keep the fire under my, under me for uh, keeping this music going. yeah, I'll I'll be in line for your first show. Amazing. Yeah. I'll I'll have to send you some of the stuff I'm working on. Please Um, do. I'd love to hear all of it. Awesome. Amazing. This is, this is so again, this is just the, the, I just never envisioned the conversation going this way. And I'm so glad it did. I'll I'll tell you what I find interesting. (laughs) I don't know if you've
1: experienced this, but more and more. I can look back on, on my life. I'm 50, almost 54 now. So I can look back now with a little bit of perspective and I can say, actually, it's this, this odd thing where you start to do a thing and you have no idea where this is going. But the, just the simple act of starting a thing opens up these doors and these paths that you, that you never could have imagined, right? So yeah. even that you just, I don't know when you started it, but you started a YouTube channel yeah, and you're doing interviews and you're just reaching out to people like, oh, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. And you just never know what door will be opened, right? From simple act of, I'll try a thing. Let's see where it
0: takes me. Well, it sounds like this is your mentality too. And you you mentioned something earlier about it. I mean, you have to take action to make Uh, things happen.
1: Sadly, sadly, it's true. It's the only way. Yeah, I Yeah. (laughs) I laugh at myself all the time where I'm like, How do, how do I get an orchestral piece played? What do you have to do? Well, you have to write a piece for orchestra. That's actually how this works. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? You gotta gotta, like, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big believer of that. And so even with this, with the electronic stuff, I've also got like some, I'm doing a bunch of cassette tape loopy stuff now too. So I find the sounds that I'm in love with on, on TikTok or on YouTube and just, just Going down the rabbit hole and oh, I really like that I'll bookmark that. I ooh, I really like that little clip, that little thing. And then it's just this endless experimentation. So I'll I'll buy an instrument, I bring it home, I try to play with it, try to see if nope, that's not it. I take it back. I try another thing, just try to, you know, and I think I think I'm finally getting my my palette down, but it's exactly what you were talking about. It's like, okay, there's no, there's no path for this, there's no guidebook. I just got to start throwing stones into the water and see what the ripples do. It's just the only way to do this.
0: Only way take massive action and when's the best time to do it. Right now. Yeah. Right. Now, and that's the other thing too is, is yep. It's yeah. <laughs> it's,
1: just, <laughs> it, it's not going to do itself. <laughs> no, but what's funny is all of that is so it's, it's so clear to say it that way. And then when yeah. you're in the midst of self doubt and, 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 you know, all that emotional frustration and, and being overwhelmed by the thing that you want to make and not knowing how to make it. It's very easy to get paralyzed. I find.
0: absolutely, absolutely.
1: And so, so I know for myself, what I've done is I've hacked my own brain because I know that I have a lot of times where I've got this cloud of indecision around me and just feel that gravity of it. And then every now and then I have no idea why there'll just be a, a break in the clouds, sunlight. It's like, Oh, there's a clear path, and there's optimism. I don't know why. It's probably a chemical thing that's happening in my mind. And then I know from experience, the moment there's that optimism, just start. I I just start clicking things like, "Yep, yep, send me this, buy this, do this. We're gonna take this. I'll try this. I'll I'll plug this all in and try." And then there's like, and then right, and then okay, we get that. You like, like just trying to hold on to those moments, and then having faith. Oh yeah, the clouds are gonna part. So when you're when you're in the this part then take that time to just do the, the heavy lifting
0: yeah it's right? also it's also great i think to commit commit to things when you are in that peak state when you're like i'm here for it i'm ready to go because if you if you don't commit to things in that state you're not going to do it when the cloud covers there that is you know so s- some big opportunity comes up and you're like no no maybe maybe next year if you're in the peak state you're like yeah baby let's get it and then <laughs> when the, and then when the clouds are there you're like Well, I committed to it, so (laughs) you got to get it done.
1: My half-baked California theory about that, all of that that it's actually the big mind that knows you need to do this thing in order to grow. And your small mind, the mind that's controlling all of this, is afraid and scared and wants to protect its sense of self, and it's not going to do this. And every now and then, the big mind gets a little daylight and then forces you to commit, knowing that, well, now you're screwed, little mind. I can't have the dialogue with you directly because you won't listen to this. So what we're going to do is we're just going to do this months long workaround <laughs> to just help polish the
0: roughness of the stone that is you in the middle of this river. That's my California uh, theory about this. I, I'm right there with you. Listen, I think we have eight more hours of conversation left to explore. Oh, I, I would love to have you back on at some point and we can I, continue. I'd chatting. love it. I'd also
1: love to, we should just hang out in person sometime. Where Are you in Florida still?
0: I'm in, I'm in Phoenix.
1: Oh, you're in Phoenix. Yes, yeah, so I'm just a few hours from LA. Yeah, anytime you come over, please let me know. Um, I will. That'd be that'd be awesome. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get a long lunch and then just continue the conversation. And in the meantime, please send me anything. Uh, that, I that will. The, yeah, thing. this
0: this voice plus electronic plus orchestra is like I'm all about it, and it's so interesting that you're you're on that you're on that path as well, and really interested in that right now. Yeah, I think it's a fine a final fusing of it, right?
1: There's, there's like the the so long classical music has tried to hold back the dam of what is actually happening. I think this all yeah. the time, every time I, I go and see a, an opera or something, it's like it's beautiful and this the staging is beautiful and I love it. But you also have to acknowledge that people now can just fire up Netflix and have the most extraordinary visuals in the history of cinema right there on their little laptop. Mm. Yeah. So it's not that opera should go away, but opera needs to acknowledge that actually their audience has a very rich and facile and tactile and um varied visual language now. That it yeah. doesn't have to just be static like this. You can actually you can speak in a lot of different visual languages or yeah. musical languages to an audience.
0: Yeah. No opera opera it does need to find a way forward it's an amazing art form and you know I, the most the most amazing thing for me and is how i sell people on it is the unamplified voices with orchestra it's like it's unbelievable superhuman. yep absolutely amazing so and that's something that you you have to be there for which is what's so difficult about opera because you can't capture the size of a voice in recording no matter what you no, just exactly the opposite right
1: you you actually get you you compress it down so that it's, yeah. it's part of the same little world. Yes. It's only when you actually see 70 people in the pit and then you're like, Oh my God, how's that? Wait, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's 3000 people in this house and I can yeah. hear them clear as a bell. Yeah. I totally agree.
0: So there, there I'm always thinking, you know, trying to figure out what, cause I love opera. I think it's amazing. I think it's, it'll be a tough path to kind of figure out and, and yeah, compete with these amazing things on, netflix that are so readily available that's right so i don't, so i think what we
1: do is we don't compete we just acknowledge and then fuse like 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 what you're doing where it's like listen people listen to classical music and they listen to dubstep yes. there are very few you know young classical musicians now who only listen to classical music i'll bet if you look at their spotify playlists they listen to every genre there is yeah so stop let's stop pretending that this is the only musical art form there is yes. smash them all together like let's let's just see what happens
0: absolutely let me hit you with a few patreon questions um before i get you off the horn what do you got three four minutes
1: i got six minutes so i'm I'm great man
0: six minutes wonderful all right i'm gonna read so some of these are comments slash questions because some people want to of course express their admiration this is from uh, this first one's from isaac who is one truly one of my biggest supporters wonderful guy is always like every video is like a a long comment about what he appreciates and it's just like it's, it's it's everything you could want in a supporter and, and a fan. So, I like Isaac already. Shout out to Isaac. He says, wow, this is amazing. Tons of exclamation points. So this is when I, I'll put your uh, a headshot of you up on my Patreon and say, hey, interview with Eric Whitaker, submit questions. Submit uh-huh, you- here. He says, I remember you doing a reaction to his song Sleep almost two years ago. Exactly one year and three months after you reacted to that piece, I stumbled upon Eric's newest song uh, at that time called All Seems Beautiful to Me. And that song was absolutely beautiful to me. It sounded like a choral song you would hear in an epic film like King of Kings or Ben-Hur and his question is he would be curious to know if you got any of your musical inspiration from these epic classics. Oh my god. So first Isaac,
1: thank you. Um and thank you for the for the passion for just for the for what Peter's doing for for the music. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um the the sh- short answer is yes. Like a thousand times yes. I think if I look at music that has influenced me as a person and as a composer no music is a greater influence on me than film music and it's funny even that he mentions all seems beautiful to me so I, I wish I had a piano right here in front of me so that I could play this but there's this three chord motive in the movie Moneyball, the Brad Pitt movie about oh, uh, the Oakland days, right? Billy a great Bean. Great movie, yeah. It's a great movie and a beautiful score. And you or Isaac, if you go back and you listen, you'll know this part that I'm talking about. Maybe I'll post it or send you a link so that you can yeah, put it on great. Your And you can hear those three chords. Now, what I remember when I heard it was I thought, that is so beautiful. I, I There's this thing that I called sacred pop, which everybody does, which is these four chords, right? <sighs> It's as always, and there are four different chords, but then you could just make them beautiful and lush and films use them, Hans Zimmer uses them. But this is only a three chord thing and it kind of loops over and over in this unexpected way. And I remember watching that just just imprinting, like how beautiful is that? So when I set out to write how beautiful uh, or all seems beautiful to me, that's, you can actually hear that three chord motive over and over and over through the, the entire first page. It's just it's this chord, then this chord, then this chord, then this chord, then this chord, in these kind of unpredictable ways, and so it was a direct influence. That Moneyball soundtrack was a direct influence on the writing of of that piece. Awesome,
0: fantastic. Okay, this is from this is actually from my mom who submitted a question. Really, so, shout out to shout out to my mom. Uh, amazing that you get to speak with him. From which composers, either classical or not, do you find inspiration? She said she would love for you to write a piece for Yo-Yo Ma. Her, she, she was actually, a, she was a cellist. And so she's, she's been to a number of Yo-Yo Ma concerts. And Yo-Yo Ma, of course, is like her. For God.
1: Yeah, you said your mom's side was, what is your mom's, mom's name? Uh, Virginia Barber. Virginia. Well, hello, Virginia. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I would also like to write for Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I wrote this hour-long piece called Sacred Veil vale recently. It's for choir and piano and cello and I love writing for cello. I find it I find it the instrument that's most like the human voice, even where the yeah. violin is, right? It's got the same basic register and the warmth and the, the, the singability. Um, when I think of composers, so besides film composers, uh, I think my desert island classical composer, well, there would be two if I could take two. One would be Debussy, who I just find Amazing. endlessly beautiful and inventive and colorful and melancholy. And the other one would be Samuel Barber, who uh, is a legend, but I think one of the great unsung heroes of classical music. I, I think that some of the music he wrote is amongst the most beautiful music I know, starting with a piece called Knoxville Summer of 1915 for Supremac. Yes, you Stunning know piece.
0: I do, I do, yeah.
1: Perfect, it's, for me, it's the perfect piece of music um yeah and there's this is like the second movement of the violin concerto which is uh, it's it's music to die to it's so beautiful
0: amazing well i'll tell my mom that you'll you'll get to work on collaborating with yoga on something <laughs> yeah yeah tell, <laughs> tell her i'll invite her to the first rehearsal when it happens yeah, because, <laughs> got it <laughs> this is uh this is from melinda hancock I, we've kind of already covered this but we can just recap um, what inspiration or composer influence do you use to put together your choral pieces? Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there certain composers that you really like, you know, their soundscapes or their atmospheres that you... you yeah, by? The,
1: the single composer, and for people who, who really know choral music, this, I don't think this will come as much of a surprise, is a composer named Arvo Perrot. And... Yeah. Arvo, the, I remember distinctly hearing Arvo Pärt for the first time. My best friend, Charles Anthony Silvestris, this poet that he wrote Sleep, he wrote the lyrics to sleep. Oh. He gave me this disc of the Passion, the St. John Passion by Arvo Pärt Pasio. And it was the first time I had ever heard dissonances that didn't resolve, where they come to, the, you know, there's that minor second and it's just, we're there and that's the end of the chord. And I get chills even thinking about the moment that I first realized that was a possibility. And I, I think I've spent 35 years chasing that dragon. This idea that you can, I always think of it as a bruise that, that hurts when you press it, but it also feels good at the same time. Yeah. You can just land on this cord and just Mm. let it, let it ache and not go away from it. It was such, it still influences me to this day. Even this piece I'm writing right now, I, I think to myself, wow, I just hear Arvo Peart's fingerprints all over this.
0: Amazing. Now I have one last super quick one. And this is from Melody. And she asks, what's your favorite key to compose in? Ooh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> it's, it's an interesting question. I think like if I did just choose a key, I probably would choose D flat major or B flat minor. It's relative major and minor first for singers and even for strings. It's just so warm and rich and chocolatey and it's, it's, it's somehow tunes super well. And it's got my favorite thing about music and frankly life, which is this, this glimmer of optimism and then this deep river of melancholy at the same time.
0: Like mm. just, I, I, that's D flat to me. I you know? always love I always love the low C sharp at the end of Luke's. Always love singing. Yeah, right? Always love singing that one in undergrad. <laughs> yeah, you've got
1: the perfect voice for it. Um yeah, that's that's it, that's an exact
0: that's a perfect
1: example of of that key, right? Is that when it switches at the end to C sharp major, but basically D flat major. Yeah. And then it's got that thing. It's it's feels like it's glowing, it's warm, but it's also just deeply melancholic and and achy yeah amazing awesome what a great life we have isn't it it is and i try
0: and i try to be i'm actively working to just be grateful 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 every day as much as possible because you're absolutely right eric this has been such a joy wow
1: yeah for me too (laughs) man it's great to meet you peter and thanks again for reaching out to me um i i I think this is the, the start of a beautiful
0: friendship I do too, man. Thank you so much. I can't wait to share this with all, especially my friends from undergrad, We because we, we, we all sang your music together so much in those undergrad choirs. And um,
1: epic, uh, not to interrupt you, but this is one of the more surreal things now about my
0: life is that
1: I'm having a conversation with you. Like you're a fully functioning artist and adult. And, and then you're, you say like, you no, know, all of the, like, like you're, thank you were, I feel simpatico with you. And and then at the same time, you're like, I can't wait to tell all my friends because when we were all young, we sang pieces <laughs> that were already twenty years old. <laughs> you know what I mean? it's, it's it's so surreal. Like, that's oh right. This this wheel of time is just turning and turning and turning. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Such such a joy, such a pleasure. I'll keep you posted on um releases and all that. And we'll be we'll of course be in touch about all the other things. Thank you, Peter. Be well. Yeah. Hey, take care. Take care, man.